Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 7th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher. And here are today's headlines. A Thai childcare center shooting kills more than 30 people. U.S. intelligence blames Ukrainians for a Moscow car bomb. Putin appears to acknowledge more losses in Ukraine. The DACA immigration program is ruled illegal. U.S. unemployment claims increase. A U.S. raid in Syria reportedly targets an Islamic State official. The U.S. could ease Venezuela's sanctions and allow Chevron to pump oil. Peace talks will try to end Ethiopia's civil war. Iran releases an imprisoned U.S. citizen. And the U.S. buys land to honor Native American massacres. Our top story, tragedy in Thailand, as more than 30 are dead after a child care center shooting. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, Newsbud, Forbes, and The Guardian. More than 30 people were killed and at least 12 injured when a gunman opened fire at a child daycare center in Nongwa Lampu, Thailand, on Thursday. According to police, at least 24 children were among those killed. Former police officer Panya Kamrab allegedly entered the center with a handgun, shotgun, and knife during lunchtime, killing children as young as two before fleeing and attacking bystanders while on the run. Kamrab, 34, had appeared in court just hours before where he faced trial on possession of methamphetamines, which saw him fired from the Nangwa police force last year. Before shooting the napping children, the suspect reportedly shot four or five staff members, including an instructor who was eight months pregnant and a woman holding a child. Witnesses say they thought the shots were fireworks at first. According to local media reports, the gunman returned home after the attack and killed his wife and child before killing himself. In a country that gives 10-year prison sentences for illegal possession of a firearm, mass shootings are reportedly rare. The last one was committed by a disgruntled soldier in 2020 who opened fire in four locations, including a shopping mall, killing at least 29 and wounding 57 others. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on this nightmare of a story. We have a couple of narrative spins, and the right narrative comes from U.S. News and World Report. Thailand is the perfect example of why gun laws don't work the way their proponents hope. Despite restricting gun purchases by age, living conditions, background checks, and proof of a valid reason, both legal and illegal guns, often from outside its borders, find their way into the hands of deranged people like this man. And Bangkok Jack gives us the left narrative spin. While theoretically Thailand has strict gun laws, the reality is far from this. The country imposes obsolete measures that are easily circumvented and can't keep up with today's culture of violence. Like in the U.S., the Southeast Asian country has millions of tracked and untracked firearms floating around the population. However, Thailand's leaders address the growing violence with a disturbing lack of vigilance. The latest tragedy should serve as a wake-up call to implement stricter controls. Well, this is just about as bad as it gets. Yeah. As we were reading it, I was thinking this is every parent's nightmare, but that's not true. This is just everyone's nightmare. It's just a, it's just a nightmare. It is. That's a horror story. Let's move on. Yeah, let's. In our next story, the U.S. intelligence says Ukrainians were behind Dugina's killing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The New York Times, CNN, Al Jazeera, 
and Radio Free Europe. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported that U.S. intelligence believes the car bombing near Moscow that killed Daria Dugina in August was authorized by Ukrainian government officials. The report speculates that the clandestine campaign could widen the conflict. This finding may corroborate elements of Russian allegations that the attack was pre-planned and carried out by Ukrainian special forces, a claim that Ukraine has repeatedly denied. It remains unknown which members of the Ukrainian government are believed to have authorized the operation and whether President Zelensky was aware of it. Dugina was the daughter of Alexander Dugin, a prominent Russian nationalist and supporter of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Some believed he was the intended target of the bombing. According to American officials, the U.S. didn't know the plan beforehand and would have opposed the killing if consulted. Following the assassination, U.S. officials reportedly admonished their Ukrainian counterparts. The report also suggests that Washington has been frustrated with Ukraine's alleged lack of transparency about its plans and fears that these symbolic attacks could provoke the Kremlin to retaliate against Ukrainian officials. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story brought to us by The New York Times. The war in Ukraine may become even more dangerous if some within the Ukrainian government make attacks like this. The U.S. and international community have tried carefully to prevent unnecessary escalations between Kyiv and Moscow, but the lack of transparency of Ukraine with regards to its military is frustrating. The West and U.S. deeply support Ukraine, but all parties must walk in lockstep on this geopolitical tightrope. And the establishment critical narrative is brought to us by RT. It's hard to believe that the U.S. and its allies were unaware of Ukraine's plans. While the New York Times report exposes Ukraine's covert actions and bolsters transparency, it's likely just a red herring to distance Washington from taking responsibility for similar future schemes against Russia. And occasionally we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says that there's a 1% chance that Kyiv will be under Russian control before the year 2023. Now let's round up the rest of the stories coming out of Ukraine as we reach day 225 of the fighting, as Putin appears to acknowledge losses and Ukraine retakes three more settlements in her zone. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Ukraine Form, I-24 News, The New York Times, and The Intercept. On Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin appeared to acknowledge the extent of the country's losses in the next regions of Ukraine, telling teachers during a televised video call, We are working on the assumption that the situation in the new territories will stabilize. It came as Ukraine reported a breakthrough in the southern Kherson region, one of the territories annexed by Moscow this week, with forces claiming they had liberated eight settlements in the region in the span of a day. In his nightly address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky claimed the liberation of three further settlements in Kherson. Meanwhile, Putin signed a decree on Wednesday ordering his government to take over operations at the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Plant, or ZNPP. The ZNPP has been under Russian control since March and is located within annexed territory. It came as Vladimir Rogov, a Ukrainian in Russia's administration in Zaporizhia, claimed without evidence that Britain was preparing Ukrainian special forces to launch an attack on the ZNPP. In a separate report in The Intercept, other U.S. officials said America has vastly expanded the presence of CIA and special forces operatives in Ukraine following the outbreak of the war. 
The report said that there is a much larger presence of both CIA and U.S. special operations personnel and resources in Ukraine than there were at the time of the Russian invasion in February. On the ground, two separate Russian attacks were reported in Ukrainian-controlled parts of Zaporizhia, killing at least one civilian and injuring at least two others. Russian attacks were also recorded in Sumy, Kharkiv, Odessa, Mykolaiv, and Melnitsky, with no additional reports of civilian casualties. Pro-Russia separatists in Donetsk reported two civilians were killed in Ukrainian shelling. We've got several narrative spins on this report as well, starting with an anti-Russia narrative coming from 1945. Putin started this illegal war that has jeopardized the world's energy security, and he is now threatening the deployment of nuclear weapons. One thing is clear. Putin has to go, and the U.S. and its allies must be steadfast in calling for regime change in Russia. And the pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. American officials are continuing to escalate this conflict, thereby increasing the prospect of a global war between Russia and the West. Why is no one calling for the West to take accountability and stabilize the situation by improving bilateral relations with Russia? And there's a nerd narrative on this story as well. It says there's a 12% chance that a non-test nuclear weapon will be detonated by January 1st, 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I mean, for my comfort, 12% could be a little bit lower. I'm sure everyone yeah, feels the same way. Yeah, those are, those are rookie numbers. Let's bring those down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. A U.S. raid in Syria reportedly targets an IS official. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, The Daily Mail, The New York Times, and France 24. On Wednesday, the U.S. military conducted a helicopter raid near Kamishli, a Syrian government-controlled city on the Turkish border in northern Syria, targeting senior Islamic State group official Rakan Wahid al-Shamri. On Thursday, the Pentagon announced that the targeted individual was killed and one of his associates was wounded during the operation. In a separate airstrike carried out on Thursday in northern Syria, the U.S. reportedly killed two other top IS leaders. While U.S. Central Command said two people were detained, local sources claim that several other people were captured during the raid in the village of Maluk Saray. Originally, residents had identified the slain man as Rakan Abu Hayel. U.S. troops reportedly landed in the village after midnight and told residents via loudspeaker to stay indoors and keep their lights off. There was allegedly no exchange of gunfire and reportedly no civilians or U.S. forces were injured in the operation. This comes days after the end of the largest combat involving American forces against IS since its fall. In this operation, U.S. troops backed the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces in a week-long fight to retake control of a prison in the city of Hasaka. Though the U.S. has been targeting IS officials in Syria this year, killing IS leader Abu Ibrahim al-Karashi in February and allegedly killing one of the top five leaders in July, this was reportedly the first airborne raid in the government-held territory since the beginning of Syria's civil war in 2011. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an establishment-critical narrative from al-Mayadeen. This operation wasn't against IS, but rather against an auxiliary force of the Syrian army. After all these years that Syria has been fighting IS, it would certainly be odd for an IS official to be hiding in Syrian government-controlled territory. The U.S. is spreading disinformation to justify its occupation of Syria, harass its legitimate government, and steal the country's oil wealth. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from CNN. 
Despite the inaccurate criticism from the Syrian government, this helicopter raid is simply a continuation of the U.S.-led coalition policy of fighting IS wherever it may hide. The operation went smoothly, caused no collateral damage, and a dangerous IS leader was neutralized. Military operations like these make the entire international community safer. A U.S. appeals court rules against the DACA immigration program. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, NPR Online News, Fox News, Forbes, and The Wall Street Journal. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, an Obama-era policy that has prevented the deportation of hundreds of thousands of young immigrants brought in as children, is unlawful, a federal appeals court ruled on Wednesday. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a Texas-based federal judge's initial finding. DACA is illegal because it wasn't subjected to public notice and the required comment periods. However, the three judges in the latest ruling also said the initial Texas judge, Andrew Hannon, should review his opinion in light of revisions made to the policy in August. DACA has faced a host of legal challenges. In 2016, the Supreme Court was split 4-4 to over an expanded form of the program and a form that would include the parents of DACA recipients. Four years later, the Trump administration was found to have improperly ended DACA in a 5-4 high court ruling. The program will likely go to the Supreme Court for a third time over Wednesday's ruling. Over 600,000 immigrants are currently protected by DACA. Although the government can't process any new applicants, those who came into the U.S. as children under DACA will continue to be protected for now. Rescinding DACA could have consequences not only for program recipients, known as DREAMers, but also for their American spouses, partners, and children. Some analysts worry about the impact on employment, too. According to attorney Andrew Pincus, on average, 1,000 people will be removed from the workforce every business day for two years if DACA recipients are no longer protected. Talks on immigration in Congress are likely to be invigorated by the recent developments, with Democrats and many GOP representatives supporting the creation of permanent legal status for the DREAMers. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story, and we'll start our spins with a Republican narrative from Breitbart. Biden's codification is yet another Democrat effort to improve the immigration eligibility of illegal aliens. The standards for DACA were previously set so low by the Obama administration that thousands of immigrants with prior violent criminal records were granted entry into the U.S. The justice system must uphold American security and put an end to this dangerous program. Contrast that with the Democratic narrative from NBC. This latest ruling has again put the future of dreamers who have spent most of their lives putting down roots in the U.S. at risk. Lawmakers must protect the statuses of these hardworking recipients who contribute to society by defending a program that stimulates the U.S. economy and props up the American labor market. Those deemed threats to public safety or national security are another matter entirely. And Metaculus is giving us a nerd narrative, stating there's a 10% chance that the U.S. will phase out per-country caps on employment-based visas before 2025. Scott, one thing that really stuck out to me on this story in the facts was stating that on average, a 1,000 people will be removed from the workforce every business day for two years. That's a lot of people to be removed from the workforce when there's an employment shortage. Yeah, that's three-quarter of a million people over the course of two years basically. Um, oh, that's that's what I was going to say. It's three quarter <laughs> of a million people. I did that math too. 
U.S. unemployment claims increase. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yahoo Finance, MSN, and Breitbart. New unemployment claims increased more than analysts expected for the week ending October 1, rising 29,000 to a seasonally adjusted 219,000, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. Economists had predicted 203,000 claims for that period. Despite these statistics, the labor market has remained strong in the face of the Federal Reserve's raising of its policy interest rate from almost 0 percent into the 3 to 3.25 percent range. The Dow Jones Industrial Average sank four-tenths of a percent, the S&P 500 slipped three-tenths, and the Nasdaq Composite dropped two-tenths at the stock market opening Thursday in reaction to the unemployment news. Challenger Gray and Christmas, a global outplacement firm, issued a separate report saying that U.S. employers cut nearly 30,000 jobs in September, 46.4 percent more than in August. However, layoffs were down 21 percent this year compared to the same time in 2021. For perspective, volatility is expected in the week-to-week claims. Accordingly, many economists look at a four-week moving average, which has recently moved up by just 250 claims. Thanks, Melissa, for those facts. Fortune magazine brings us the Democratic narrative. The Fed has gotten some of the desired job market results from its rate hikes. The economy isn't in, nor does it seem to be headed for a recession. There's increased participation in the workforce, and demand for labor is nearly back to the pre-COVID normal. This is good economic news for Biden and the Democrats ahead of the midterms. And where there's a Democratic narrative, there's a Republican one. This one comes from Town Hall. The U.S. economy is a wreck, and there's nothing the Fed can do to save it unless Biden and the Democrats stop their reckless spending. The nation needs a plan that cuts spending, increases domestic energy production, and provides tax and regulatory certainty for small businesses to avoid a dangerous recession. And a report claims that the U.S. could ease Venezuela's sanctions and allow Chevron to pump oil. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, Business Insider, Bloomberg, Reuters, and USA Today. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, the Biden administration is planning to relax some sanctions on Venezuela to allow Chevron and other U.S. oil service companies to resume operations there, increasing oil supply on the global market. The U.S. has offered sanctions relief in exchange for Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro's renewed talks with the country's opposition on the conditions needed to hold free and fair elections in 2024, sources allegedly familiar with the proposal told the Wall Street Journal. This comes in the aftermath of the OPEC Plus agreement earlier this week to cut daily oil production by 2 million barrels per day from November to drive crude prices up countering a recent price-lowering trend. The National Security Council has said the U.S. sanctions policy on Venezuela remains unchanged, arguing it will be reviewed after the Maduro regime takes constructive steps to restore democracy in Venezuela and alleviate the suffering of the Venezuelan people. Also Wednesday, Reuters reported that U.S.-recognized Venezuelan interim leader Juan Guaido has asked the U.S. for details of Chevron's license request to operate in the country because its deal with Venezuela's state-owned oil company, PDVSA, could be in breach of Venezuelan law. Despite hostile reactions, Caracas and Washington struck a deal Saturday to swap seven Americans held in Venezuela for two Maduro relatives jailed in the U.S. following months of back-channel talks. Thank you, Scott. Let's start our spins with Narrative A, provided by The Guardian. 
The Venezuelan oil embargo has failed, and not lifting it would continue a harmful policy, especially amid the global energy crisis. Despite bipartisan opposition to relaxing sanctions, the Biden administration will only harm both the American and the Venezuelan people by keeping this failed approach in place. This new plan may just be the strategy needed. Fox News brings us Narrative B. Since he took office, Biden has been at war with the U.S. oil business, and this plan would only continue those hostilities. Working with domestic oil companies should be his focus, not opening up Venezuela, which might not even be able to overcome its oil industry's dilapidated state and produce enough oil to alleviate the problem of high gas prices. And there's a nerd narrative on this report. There's a 50% chance that Venezuela will produce, on average, 928,000 barrels of oil per day, in 2022. That's according to our friends at the Metaculous Prediction Community. The Ethiopian government and Tigray rebels accept peace talk invitations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The East African, MSN, NDW. On Wednesday, the Ethiopian federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, leadership reportedly accepted the African Union's invitation to participate in peace talks. The negotiations are scheduled to begin on Saturday in South Africa. According to Addis Ababa, the invitation is consistent with the government's position of holding talks without preconditions. The TPLF also expressed its agreement but requested further specifics on participants, observers, and guarantors. The negotiations will reportedly be mediated by a troika of negotiators that include African Union's envoy to the Horn of Africa, Alushingan Abbasanyo, former Kenyan president Uhuru Kenyatta, and South Africa's former deputy president Fumzile Malambo Nuka. Previously, the two sides disagreed over who should mediate the negotiations. While Addis Ababa favored Obasanyo, the TPLF insisted on Kenyatta and cited restoring basic services such as electricity, communications, and banking in Tigray as another precondition for talks. On Tuesday, the TPLF claimed a drone strike killed at least 65 refugees in the Tigray town of Adi Dairo. Earlier, it had announced it was withdrawing from Ethiopia's Amhara region for tactical reasons to counter an alleged offensive by Eritrean forces. The planned peace talks come after renewed fighting broke out between Eritrean troops, allied with the Ethiopian government, and TPLF forces in late August, ending a five-month truce. The talks would mark the highest-level negotiations between the TPLF and Addis Ababa since the conflict erupted in November of 2020. Thanks for those facts. Melissa, Eurasia Review gives us an establishment-critical narrative. The TPLF started the war in 2020 and has so far shown no real interest in constructive talks to end hostilities, instead using government-initiated humanitarian ceasefires merely as tactical breathing space. The rebels are taking their Ethiopian compatriots hostage and even stealing aid supplies. But military and international pressure are growing. For the people of Ethiopia, one can only hope that the TPLF and their Western accomplices are serious about peace this time. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from 1945. All previous attempts by Ethiopian prime minister to break the Tigrayans' resistance through collective punishment and starvation have failed. But in the meantime, the economic situation is also increasingly deteriorating. So even if Abiy has so far used negotiations only as a delaying tactic to reposition his troops, perhaps this time the will for peace will prevail in Addis Ababa. 
And great thanks to the U.S., which has always advocated for peace and negotiations in Ethiopia. In car racing, they have, I believe it's a yellow flag. So when, when there's some kind of issue with the track or with somebody, a safety issue, they put a yellow flag out and no one's allowed to pass anybody else, even as they're circling the track. Right. Um, that seems to be what they need here. Like you can't move any of your troops. You can't do anything during this ceasefire. Right, guys? Right. Everybody needs to take a breath and uh, go eat some McDonald's. <laughs> mm. Sounds good, though. Uh. Iran releases American citizen Bakr Namazi. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CBS, CNN, NPR Online News, Reuters, and The Washington Post. Iranian-American Bakr Namazi, who was arrested by Iran on espionage charges, reportedly left the country on Wednesday, initially for Oman, after being detained for more than six years. The 85-year-old former UNICEF official who served as governor of Iran's oil-rich Khuzestan province under the U.S.-backed Shah was arrested in 2016. He was placed under house arrest in 2018 on medical grounds. According to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Namazi left Oman for the United Arab Emirates, where he is reportedly undergoing medical treatment in Abu Dhabi to clear a severe blockage that put him at high risk of a stroke. Meanwhile, Namazi's son, Sia, arrested in 2015 during a business trip to Iran, remains in Iranian custody but was granted a one-week renewable furlough over the weekend. Both were sentenced to prison terms that the U.S. alleges were based on false spying charges. Namazi, who, like his son, was convicted in 2016 of collaboration with a hostile government and jailed for 10 years, was one of four Iranian-Americans who have been detained in recent years or barred from leaving the country. The U.S. State Department rejected claims by Iranian officials that these latest developments were part of a deal to release $7 billion in Iranian assets held in South Korea that had been frozen under U.S. sanctions. Thank you for the facts, Scott. We've got several spins on this story. The anti-Iran spin comes from Voices of America. Bakr Namazi was wrongfully and cruelly detained in 2016 while trying to secure the release of his son. While his release is a positive step, the U.S. must work diligently to free all wrongfully detained U.S. citizens in Iran. Tehran's unjust detentions are a human rights issue. And the pro-Iran spin comes from the Islamic Republic News Agency. Iran has every right to combat the threat of extremism and terrorism often inflicted by U.S. and Western meddling. Titles such as dual nationality are not a free pass for those who cannot respect Iranian law. Tehran has a responsibility to take reasonable security precautions. And there's a nerd narrative on this story. From Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by June 2048. Whenever I hear about one of these stories of someone being detained overseas, it just makes me want to stay in my own country. Like It kind of makes me want to like stay in like New Zealand uh, or Fiji and get wrongfully detained on oh, some and just wonderful be, beach island. Oh, and just be stuck in a villa. Yeah, that sounds yeah. amazing. A good idea. Right. And it's just so sunny that everyone's pleasant. You know, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's how it actually works. Yeah, well, there's only one way to find out. <laughs> In our final story today, the U.S. acquires more land to honor Native American massacres. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Colorado Public Radio, Axios, and Colorado Newsline. 
In a ceremony on Wednesday, U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland announced that the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site would acquire roughly 3,500 acres of additional land in southeastern Colorado. The ceremony occurred at the historic site alongside members of Colorado's congressional delegation, as well as Native tribal leaders. Patrick Spottenwolf, chief of the Southern Arapaho tribe, stated, This is great, a step forward. The site commemorates Native Americans who were massacred by U.S. troops in 1864 after John Evans, considered the territorial governor by whites at the time, called on non-Natives to go in pursuit, kill and destroy Indians on the plains. This led to the deaths of about 230 people, half of whom were women and children. Howland said the move was intended to tell a more complete history of America, and that it was his responsibility to raise the visibility of indigenous peoples, our cultures, our heritage, and the traumatic history that we continue to live every day. The ceremony comes after the U.S. Department of the Interior launched a derogatory geographic names task force, which last month announced the renaming of about 650 places whose names contain a slur used for Native American women. All right, Melissa, thanks for those enlightening facts on this, our final story. We have a left narrative spin from WCPO ABC9 in Cincinnati. This land expansion by Holland, the first Native American to serve as Secretary of the Interior, is a move that should be praised for not only providing more opportunities for Americans to learn about this massacre, but to strengthen the nation's education about the tragic history of indigenous peoples. And here's the right narrative from Science 2.0. Improving our understanding of historical events is always a good thing, but those who use a binary brush to paint the natives as defenseless, peaceful tribes and the American settlers as bloodthirsty predators are doing a disservice. Nothing justifies or excuses the Sand Creek Massacre, but it is also worth remembering that some of the most violent eras for native tribes came long before Europeans arrived. History deserves nuance, not political correctness. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 7th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.